time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. I'm United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams, America's doctor. And all across our nation, we've taken steps together to slow the spread of coronavirus. Now we must continue to take personal responsibility to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Because even though not all of us risk a severe case of coronavirus, we all risk getting it and spreading it to others, maybe without even realizing that we're sick. So if we want to get back to school, back to work, back to worship, and back to overall health. There are things our country needs to do. We need to follow state and local guidelines, take extra precautions if at higher risk, wash our hands frequently, stay six feet from others when we can, and when we can't stay six feet from others, please, I'm begging you, wear a face covering. These small actions will make a big difference. So I'm asking you to say it with me, America. Coronavirus stops with me. You can learn more at coronavirus.gov. Produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at taxpayer expense. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there, and please, stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2. This is going to be an interesting uh, hour, to be sure, as I am joined by the co-authors of a book that studies the business practices of mobsters. It's called Relentless. It's written by Gerald Zimmerman, Ph.D., who's uh, uh, a globally uh, recognized microeconomist, and Daniel P. Forrester, who uh, works uh, with um, leaders in bridging the gap between corporate culture and corporate strategy. And uh, I want to say, Jerry, welcome, and uh, Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Um, and, and I have to ask, and I'm not sure, I, I guess I'll, I'll send this one out to Jerry first, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll hear from Daniel, but um, what, how did the idea to study criminal business models occur to one or the other or both of you? Uh, this is Jerry. I'll uh, start on that. Uh, it's... Uh, is really a marriage of my academic interests and my avocation uh, with organized crime. Uh, starting at a very young age, I was fascinated by gangster 
TV shows, gangster movies, The Sopranos, uh, Godfathers, etc. And uh, it always caused me to wonder how these organizations continue to survive uh, because most of the movies in actual practice, uh, these bad guys don't last very long. But their organizations continue to do that. And uh, my research is focused on how do you uh, construct uh, corporate governance mechanisms that can attract, uh, recruit, maintain, provide incentives for a workforce of self-interested individuals. And that problem exists in both lawful and unlawful firms. And I've studied lawful firms, and I was curious to see if the same economic principles apply to unlawful organizations. And Daniel, I'll adjust that question a little bit for you, because I'm, I'm curious about uh, this, the structure of these things. Most of us think of the underworld, if you will, for lack of a better way of lumping them all together, um, as, as not abiding by the rules, but yet your book seems to indicate that there are rules. There's a lot of rules, Tom, um, and there's spoken codes and credos, and there's some parts of it that Gary and I, as we, as we got into it and debated it, they're following uh, essentially the principles of economics. Uh, and they're aligning their organizations from the top to the bottom with structures that have enabled them to scale and to last over time. And one of the pieces that drew me into this project, I'm, uh, I'm very much similar to Jerry. I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a sucker for anything that has to do with uh, following these guys or, or any, any re-episode of the Pine Barrens from Sopranos. And what drew me in specifically to this topic and a chance to work with my mentor was really looking at the cultures of these organizations. Corporate culture is definitively now the great differentiator for lawful organizations. Uh, when we hear that 500 best companies to work for in America, what you're reading in that magazine that day in Fortune or Forbes is the 500 best cultures to work for. It was fascinating for me to take a step back with Jerry and start to look at, well, wait a minute, do the same principles of a high-performing culture that a lawful firm like a Southwest Airlines follows, do they apply to the Bloods and the Crips or El Chapo or the U.S. Mafia? And the answer is a decidedly different value set, Tom. But make no mistake, there is a credo and an ethos that attracts and keeps in the people that these organizations want to have a part of them that there's a lot for lawful leaders to learn from. What are some of the things that we would be surprised to find out are uh, similar between legal and illegal enterprises? And one thing that comes to my mind is um, uh, perhaps um, uh, the standards of excellence in, in terms of service delivery. The uh, surprising thing is that... Uh, these uh, underworld organizations uh, are incredibly decentralized. Uh, they give the decision-making uh, authority to people on the streets who have the best knowledge of what criminal activities are best pursued. And uh, they operate much like a, a franchise, a McDonald's franchise, in that uh, instead of being a store manager and you get paid a salary, 
the the uh, mobsters on the street are uh, re- have incredible incentives to uh, find lucrative schemes because they get to keep seventy five percent of their ill-gotten gains, and so. The thing that is similar about both uh, lawful and unlawful organizations is that they uh, create in- incredibly strong incentives for people uh, in the organization to pursue the organization's goals. Is I it? Go, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, Tom, I'd add another dimension to it. You know, um, lawful companies, when they're building their brands and, and establishing and pushing out their corporate cultures, they follow an analytic framework we, uh, we have seen, I've seen as an expert in this space, through symbol, through action, and through rhetoric, the words that they use. These groups symbolically um, protect their brands, protect the imagery, protect even the colors uh, that guide them. So the brand identities that companies hold fast to and protect through lawful means, these folks are deeply interested symbolically. And that also includes, by the way, the rituals for onboarding. Uh, which we we studied very very closely through action. Um, these folks have an un, to to build on Jerry's point on the decentralization. Uh, we talk about being customer centric, customers, um, and putting the customer at the center of your business. These are not products that these organizations sell that Jerry and I uh, wish to consume. I don't think Tom, they're products you would wish to consume either. But my goodness, do these folks that run these organizations have an unbelievable ability to build their local franchise around customer wants, customer needs and have it with no bureaucracy, by the way, uh, to make sure that they can do that. And then the words and, and, and the language that they use, very, very powerful, very repetitive, uh, that makes and creates a lasting context in which uh, mostly men, by the way, wish to be affiliated, to be recognized, which is something we'll, I'm sure we'll comment on here as we, as we continue. So symbol, action, and rhetoric are very similar between lawful and unlawful organizations. Da- Daniel, what did you mean when you said onboarding? Onboarding, meaning uh, the interview process. Um, you know, Jerry and I had incredible uh, background conversations, and he one day said to me, he said, well, how, how difficult is it to get hired in your organization? And, uh, you know, I'm the founder of a consultancy, and I'm pretty proud of it, and we don't have a high acceptance rate by design. Uh, it's, it's quite challenging to become a member of my company. And, uh, you know, I told him I think it's a you know, two- to three-month process, lots of tests, lots of interviews, background checks, et cetera. And then we started to think about the initiation and rituals that these organizations go through in the mafia to become a made man. How, how, could you imagine a nine-year interview process, Tom? Uh, you know, we're not suggesting that that's uh, something that lawful leaders should uh, think about copying. But, it, you know, the onboarding and who you're attracting into the organization, these folks do an incredible job at vetting, at being very intentional, and at, in sort of an onboarding process that, that's really about indoctrination. Uh, and it was another similarity that when you see high-performing organizations that thrive in this atmosphere where talent, particularly, uh, you know, millennial talent, which is racing to take over all of our organizations, uh, there's a lot to learn from how intentional these organizations are with who they attract and bring in and attempt to retain as these groups uh, bring in folks and do it and at scale for decades and even you know, stringing together decades. It's an incredible thing to even think about. And and though um, there might be a lot to, to be learned about the hiring process, what about the firing process? <laughs> Ter- <laughs> termination's got to be a little bit different in the underworld. 
Uh, first of all, most of these uh, people, this is a lifestyle choice. Uh, and they want to be in the mafia, or they want to be in the Hells Angels, or the Bloods and Crips. And so uh, the only times that these people leave these organizations is if they break the rules and they pay the, the, the punishment for that, and often the punishment can be death. Uh, but uh, most of them are there until either they go to jail, and even when they go to jail, uh, they come back and go back into the gang. Uh, because the gang is protecting them as long as you don't snitch. So uh, the you know they, they they don't have to worry about uh, Google losing somebody to Amazon. It's not like one family is going to poach another family. But uh, the incredibly strong cultures of these uh, organized crimes keep these people wanting to to be involved. This is what they want. This is um, this this is fascinating. The um, how do you go about studying these organizations? Is is there is there a paper trail? Um, are there books to be examined, or is it all anecdotal? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it turns out that um, the organizations we studied were ones where there was. Uh, large amounts of publicly available information. In particular, uh, three out of the four organizations we study, we had autobiographies uh, written by the founders. Uh, Joe Bonanno founded the Bonanno family. Uh, Sonny Barger founded the Hells Angels. And these guys were quite explicit in terms of how they uh, ran the organizations. Uh, now, they and apparently were, uh, how they wanted to be remembered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there was, you know, huge numbers of books written on the American Mafia, the Hells Angels, there's a number, numerous uh, magazine and newspaper articles. So uh, that was uh, not hard. We also interviewed uh, prosecutors and some uh, defense attorneys to kind of round out uh, the the process. Well, I, I, I want to talk some more about what uh, American businesses can learn from these uh, organizations, but I have a break coming up here in about a minute. Can you uh, stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Of course. My, sure. My guests are uh, Daniel Forrester and Gerald Zimmerman. They are the co-authors of a book that looks at the uh, forensics of the uh, business practices of mobsters and, and other uh, criminal enterprises. It's called Relentless. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 FM, our voice is radio in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or... Uh, do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're uh, streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We will return in uh, just a few minutes with uh, more of my conversation with the uh, co-authors of Relentless, Gerald Zimmerman and Daniel Forrester. Um, lots more of the show straight ahead. So by all means, stay tuned. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get the through it. Summer. 
www.thepetprogram.com. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we continue now with my conversation with the co-authors of a book called Relentless that looks at the business practices of um, illegal enterprises. It, the book is called Relentless. My guests are called Gerald Zimmerman and Daniel Forrester. Jerry, Daniel, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks. Pleasure. Um, as we get into more of this, was this... The reason for this book was it was it academic curiosity, or did you really expect to find some things that that might be um, illuminating for legitimate businesses? Great question. Uh, I have always uh, prided myself on being curious, and uh, in my academic research and in writing this book, and it was really that curiosity of. Ha- what allows these organizations to survive despite the enormous law enforcement efforts directed at them? And when you think about it, uh, they don't have the access to all of the uh, institutions that lawful firms take advantage of every day, like banks and insurance contracts and the courts uh, and uh, the Internet and, and accountants and lawyers. Most of these organizations cannot write anything down lest it be used against them. And so the book really was, what is it that allows these organizations to survive when uh, other organizations like Kodak and JCPenney's and, uh, Net and uh, Blockbuster can't survive? That was, so that, that's what the itch I had that I needed to scratch. And, uh, Tom, for me, I think the... Thinking about you know this fundamental question, if given if these individuals, mostly men, pretty much all men, um, had been dealt a different card in life, quite you know, and and had uh, I'm I'm a very fortunate guy. I I got to study at the University of Rochester with uh, with Jerry Zimmerman, and to learn, uh, he, he took me from being a poet to uh, the, the the mini micro economist that I am. But I'm I'm fortunate. I've had that training. The question that really fascinated me was if life had thrown a different curve to any one of these individuals that wind up leading these organizations, could they on their best day in a lawful way uh, actually run organizations effectively and efficiently? And the answer is decidedly yes. When we talked to prosecutors that had to bring down or to try to cut, you know, take these organizations and deconstruct them, they marveled at how innovative, resourceful these individuals are. And it turns out that, you know, had, had, they, had, had life and chance brought them to a different context, they might be some of the great leading business titans in our country. And so that was instantly fascinating. And the more we talked to prosecutors recently, I've got, uh, I live, I live uh, in New Jersey and got some prosecutors in and around my town who we didn't interview. And one of them told me recently a story where she was representing um, a former member of the blood in New Jersey here. And this young man had not only, he certainly done some, some bad things and run, run some illegal pieces, but he had a set of you know, legal businesses that he was running as well. And she actually made the argument in, in the courts uh, to talk about you know, the capacity and capability of this individual 
if if uh, if life had, had dealt him a different set of cards. I mean, the man was clearly a skilled business leader. So that was instantly fascinating to get a chance to rekindle, uh, you know, decades of, of relationship with a mentor and someone I respect as much as Jerry Zimmerman, and to imagine uh, the the role of chance in life. Uh, and had and could any one of these folks that we are studying this book could they have been an Elon Musk? The answer is it's, it's quite possible if life had dealt them a different set of cards. But in a case like the one you describe, where there was someone who, you know, had this this um, illegal these illegal enterprises going, and then uh, ended up running some legitimate businesses as well. Um, why? Is the gain sufficient to keep them from making the decision to just go legit? Well, again, well, it, yeah, Jack. It, uh, I think it's the culture. I think it's the lifestyle. Uh, being uh, a made man in one of the New York City mafias uh, gave you enormous prestige. And as as part of uh, the money laundering process, most of these guys had to have legitimate businesses to show income. Uh, they were restaurants or bars or clubs of different kinds, and uh, uh, so they certainly were multitasking. You know, and the other side of it too, just to build on that idea, one of the in, in my work with lawful organizations, Tom, and lawful leaders. What, what I find when I look at corporate cultures and we measure culture, we, we ask employees, what do they see normatively and behaviorally in the current culture? And what do they want more of in the desired culture, the future culture? And in the future culture question, which I've asked to literally tens of thousands of employees around the country, uh, we hear sets of terms. People want more accountability. People want more um, career guidance. And the word that probably over-indexes the most if you're an expert and you study the measurement of culture is recognition. People crave recognition, and I remind my lawful CEOs all the time, there's a statistic that we, we push out a lot. 60% of the American workforce wasn't thanked once last year for their labor. 60% of the American workforce wasn't thanked once. Well, let's take a look at what's happening inside these groups, these, these underground groups. They're attracted because there's, there's a pattern inside the culture of recognition, of validation, to use what Jerry was talking about before. Uh, there's an identity that's established. Uh, these, these leaders and, and, and folks in these organizations, they can't go on Glassdoor and do a review of the mobster groups that they're in. But we're all, uh, every one of us, lawful or, Ill, or, or from an unlawful perspective, we all crave the ability to be recognized, to fit in, to feel like we're contributing to a high-performing team. And these organizations, again, not peddling products that the three of us would wish to consume, but there's something of a void that's being filled within all of them inside their cultures that is creating camaraderie, esprit de corps, uh, a clear set of values. They also value immorality. Yes, that was something we had to confront in the book. They value immorality, but they also value um, the, the other positive things that make their organization so long-lasting and capable of reinventing themselves as they continue to attract the next generation of folks to join them. Um, you you actually have me thinking about two different things, and I'll go ahead and take this one first, because you were talking about the uh, um, uh, almost uh, well the the recognition part of it, and I thought um, 
is it uniquely American to admire um, bad guys from Billy the Kid to Al Capone? Uh, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, there are very no. there are very popular uh, TV shows and movies on local mobsters uh, in Sicily, in Italy. There's uh, uh, there's a lot of media devoted towards that. Uh, uh, there are Hell's Angels clubs. Uh, for, I think there's over 450 clubs around the world, and a lot of those are international. Actually, the Hell's Angels is much stronger in Canada uh, as a as a criminal organization in, than in the U.S. And the other thing that I was thinking about, guys, was the um, you keep making reference to some of the products that that these uh, um, illegal enterprises offer to the public but but some of those things have become widely acceptable i'm thinking about uh gambling and numbers for example and now we have uh you know lotteries in almost every state in the country and uh casinos popping up um on on reservations uh, all over the country um and and uh one of the other areas um well, prostitution is legal in uh, Nevada. Um, you know, several, uh, well, prohibition was overturned. So some of the things that that these uh, ne'er-do-wells were peddling were obviously things people wanted, and to the degree that they eventually became not so illegal. Well, the... Uh Mafia was extremely good at reinventing itself. When Prohibition went away uh, in the 30s, uh, they went into other activities. Uh, for the, One of the big ones was after, or during World War II, there was uh, rationing of basic staples like sugar and tires and uh, gasoline, and the Mafia went into the business of counterfeiting those coupons. Uh, <laughs> they... Uh, they uh, went into uh, labor unions and got control of local unions and began extorting businesses. And so uh, there's always something illegal to do. Uh, you know, now some of them are into uh, uh, identity theft and things of, like that, off offshore gambling. So uh, they're very, very good at... Uh, finding new ways of making money, probably not as good as uh, Bezos or uh, our friend Elon Musk, but uh, they they are certainly able to find new scams. And, uh, and I'll add to that, Tom, the, perhaps on our planet during this most unique moment in our history, the most important product, scarce product in the world right now are vaccines. And uh, Jerry and I have sets of alerts that we read constantly uh, about where what the uh, what these organizations are up to. And it was not shocking to us to see Interpol put out just about a week or so ago uh, data that these mob and mobster groups uh, are absolutely going to be a part of scams and schemes related to distribution of this incredibly these scarce vaccines or facsimiles of them. So. 
the you know to your point you, you talked about a bunch of vices that seem to be translating into norms in in america here uh these organizations are as we say relentless in the pursuit of the next scheme and why wouldn't they want to think about and participate in this moment that we're leaning into and living through in terms of vaccine distribution with the scarcest resource on the planet yeah that's Interesting point there. What about competition? How does competition compare between legal and illegal enterprises? We always hear that competition is is fierce and ruthless, but I suspect there uh, there are similarities, but certainly some big noticeable differences. That's a, a, an interesting area that we found uh, where these four organizations differ differ enormously. Uh, We all see what's going on in Mexico with the Mexican cartels uh, killing each other. Uh, Tens and dozens of people a day are dying down there because the cartels are fighting over uh, the routes of smuggling drugs into the United States. At the other end of the spectrum is a, a mafia in New York City where once prohibition broke out and there was a lot of competition, a lot of uh, new players that came into supplying booze, uh, there was a lot of wars between these various families to the point that it was really disrupting their business. And so the five family leaders got sat down and said, uh, this is not good for business, and they formed something called the commission. And the commission is like a board of directors that sits on top of the five families that if uh, one family wants to kill a member of another family because they did something bad, uh, they have to go to the commission to get that permission. And so forming this uh, this uh, board of directors or Supreme Court or however you want to characterize it drastically reduced the amount of violence uh, and competition among the families because the families were operating in in well-defined neighborhoods in New York City, and they were all supplying uh, unique products, and it was easy for them to monitor, unlike the Sinaloa cartels. Is there a connection um, between various cities and regions with regard to at least organized crime? Uh Yes, uh, the the commission, uh, until uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, prosecuted most of the leaders and really put a dent in the, the American mafia in the mid-80s, uh, the, the commission, which were the five families in New York City, really stretched across all of the United States and Canada. And all of the Italian mafias in all of the various cities, be it Detroit or Rochester, New York, or even Denver, Colorado, uh, the, the local families were reporting to or controlled by the commission. And the same structure exists in the uh, Hells Angels. The Oakland chapter, which was the founding chapter, is referred to as the mother chapter, and it, it polices uh, conflicts across uh, the other clubs. And Hell's Angel seems unusual to be on the list um, for me. Do they have an, a, a charter that mandates uh, 
certain illegal activity? No. Uh, in fact, if you read uh, Sonny Barger's uh, book, uh, his autobiography of the Hell's Angels, he refers to Hell's Angels as um, as an or as a as a club that contains or uh, criminals. It's not a criminal organization, but it's an organization that contains criminals. And it's up to each club, which they limit their size to usually under 30 people in, in order to keep the bonds of brotherhood very tight, uh, that the club usually is not directly running rackets. Its function is to provide the lifestyle that they organize these motorcycle runs, and then it's individual members of the club who decide whether they want to get involved in selling uh, or moving dope around. Uh, most of them are involved in either the transport of uh, drugs and, and illegal weapons. But that's in the United States. Canada is very different, and the Canadian Hells Angels are, in fact, much more organized around uh, uh, doing bad things. This must have been fascinating. What surprised you most about the things you uncovered in putting together this book? Anne, why don't you take that one? Well, um, a bunch of things surprised me. Um, I, I, Tom, I exposed my company years ago to a methodology that really changed uh, my way of thinking with every client I worked with, which is to ask the question, uh, a lot of people come into situations and say, what's the problem? We ask the question, what's, what's right about the organization? And the method is called appreciative inquiry. And when you really understand what appreciative inquiry is, it says that even in the most difficult situations, even in moments where you're looking at something that on its face is terrible, if you can ask the question, what's right about that, not to justify nefarious actions, but what are the secondary effects of it? What, is, what does it set in motion? Uh, this was, in a certain sense, using appreciative inquiry to look at the cast uh, of the fate of these people and to, dis to discern that not dissimilar to Goldman Sachs or Facebook or Google, these organizations follow the fundamental laws of economics in trying to align employees uh, to achieve, uh, you know, again, products and services that I'm not really interested in, but they do it at scale. And so this was to me, just an unbelievable exercise to go in and start to look at uh, and even the value set. So going, and Jerry and I had lots of conversations, you should see the, the, the email exchanges, where we're literally teasing out, you know, organizations talk about their core values. What are the core values of the Hells Angels? What are the core values of the Bloods and the Crips? And so to start to tease out that those core values aren't a plaque on the wall. They're actually unbelievably well-attuned and used to attract leaders into the organization or the next employees and to retain them. Again, coming back to that idea of, uh, of esprit de corps, one last thing I'll say that really surprised us as we, we uh, thought through, it's fun thinking through a title for a book, uh, and Jerry discovered one day that it's a pretty, pretty amazing thing what happens when you type in the word www.relentless.com into the internet. Do you have any sense? Tom, of what, where, where that would take you? Where, I, I don't. Where, our, our previous governor, Rick Snyder, used to use the phrase all the time, relentless positive action. 
Well, in this case, if you type in or anyone listening to this radio show types in relentless.com, it takes you to Amazon. And Jerry discovered that, that it turns out that that <laughs> word and that URL is squatted on by none other than Jeff Bezos. It was one of the names that he was considering for Amazon. By the way, if you type in Relentless one more time inside Amazon, you'll get to see the book and you could pre-order it because it comes out tomorrow. So that surprised <laughs> us as well was to, was to understand that the, the, the word Relentless itself, that Jeff Bezos back in the formative days of Amazon was considering naming his company that. He didn't choose it. We, we all know what he chose, but that was, that was surprising. Are there real benefits for American businessmen uh, in in uh, in reading this book above uh, just the pure, the pure fascination with some of the characters? I uh, we we believe so. Uh, we hope so. Uh, the, if you open up the first page of the first chapter of an ec- economics book. It says the key assumption in economics is that uh, people are self-interested, they're resourceful, uh, they have insatiable wants, and they uh, make trade-offs among all sorts of things they value. They just don't value money. They value recognition. They value uh, self-esteem. They, they value uh, rewarding jobs. And so uh, what surprised us is how clearly these... Uh, nefarious people really understood uh, self-interest and how they built organizations around uh, providing self-interested people strong incentives to work for for the the criminal enterprise. And they end up devising corporate governance mechanisms uh, that create incredibly strong teams and strong cultures and strong brands. And by following the same economic principles, lawful managers, while they cannot copy the the mechanisms, the actual corporate governance mechanisms that the the criminals follow, uh, they certainly can follow and understand that uh, you you have to understand what your workers value and give it to them, and you have to understand what your customers value and give it to them, and you have to view these people as self-interested. That's the message that I've been teaching for 50 years, and it's basically the bottom line message in Relentless. I'll also say, Tom, that um, you, you said, you know, is there something that the lawful leaders out there in uh, listening to this conversation can gather? This is not uh, just simply anecdotal. This is 70 years of Nobel Prize winning economics underpins it. At the back of the book, uh, Jerry puts out sort of the the, the the peloton of the foundational um, pieces that really changed the way all of us think about a microeconomic understanding of human behavior. So at the back of the book, what we do is we, we, give, a, we give lawful leaders a roadmap. Um, these principles that we happen to apply to mobsters, because I was lucky to have met Jerry nearly 30 years ago, um, I've been applying them in my work with lawful leaders because the pillars that we, we articulate here in a most unusual way because of mobsters, these pillars are the same ones that the, the local 7-Eleven trying to, uh, to make more money or a restaurant or uh, even Goldman Sachs. These same four pillars are the ones that we believe give the highest probability to confront the self-interest that, and align around that self-interest that Jerry articulated moments ago. So there's a blueprint at the back of the book for lawful leaders to follow. I have to take another break here. Can you stick around and we can talk for a few more minutes? Yes.
Okay. Hello there, we'll be citizens. right back. Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490.
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with co-authors of a book that looks at the forensics behind the business practices of uh, mobsters and and other uh, illegal enterprises. The book is called Relentless. The authors are Gerald Zimmerman and Daniel Forrester. Uh, Welcome back, guys. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks. Good um, to be here. The... the, uh, one thing I was wondering about during the break as, as we prepare to wrap up our uh, conversation today, and this this is fascinating, is, um, you know, we always hear the phrase, follow the money. Um, are there accounting practices that that um, can be culled from the, the study of these organizations? Uh, the, the one... Um a uh, lesson you learn from accounting is don't do it. <laughs> Al Capone <laughs> uh, actually was keeping detailed accounting records of his various activities, which as speakeasies and his uh, uh, his uh, prostitution bordellos, and he was using this to calculate the profits of uh, these uh, far-flung enterprises he had around Chicago. And he was using it as a way to uh, reward the, the good managers and punish the bad managers. Uh, once the uh, feds got their hands on these uh, accounting records, they used them, uh, used them to uh, send Al to Alcatraz for income tax evasion. So uh, ever since then, uh, people keep their books in their heads because it's a lot safer there. And that must require a certain amount of skill. It does. There was uh, one character uh, you probably heard of, Meyer Lansky. He was associated with the five families. He was called the human uh, calculator because during Prohibition, he would keep track of literally thousands of transactions in his head. And... uh, he would then tell people who to pay and what, and uh, everyone trusted uh, Meyer as an honest guy. You know, Tom, you you bring up the accounting practices. I've been spending some time, uh, again, listening to atypical folks to learn lessons. Andrew Fastow, the former CFO um, and, and now out of prison who uh, was in charge of a once iconic company, a, a company once considered great uh, as it was is written about in Good to Great, Enron. Um, Andrew has been doing a great job, I think, um, in helping lawful leaders to realize that forensically uh, there's incredible incentives inside organizations that are lawful. Uh, and Enron did this at a scale with thousands and thousands of market makers watching them and watching the stock price. And they did it in plain sight. So the uh, the same principles uh, that we talk about in the book here that are so adeptly used by our mobsters, it's been interesting to listen to when you have uh, leaders like uh, Andrew Fastow with a mournful heart now, learning that through accounting uh, you can hide incredible in plain sight 
uh, and how do you shine a light of transparency on that? Because the incentive alignment problem at Enron uh, had to be addressed, and it, and it lent itself to a culture, by the way, that was willing uh, for many at the top of the house of that organization uh, to do nefarious things. So uh, there's, there's, there's hope here as you study our book uh, that even lawful leaders who are forensically looking into the accounting practices of companies were all amazed by companies until one day were shocked at what was happening behind <laughs> the scenes. There's a lot for Relentless to teach you about making sure you're not shocked. Um, and, and again, the, the name of the book is Relentless, the Forensics of Mobsters Business Practices by uh, Gerald Zimmerman and Daniel Forrester, who I've been spending the hour with. And this is a fascinating uh, look at these um, illegal uh, business organizations. Um, as we wrap things up, guys, um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book comes out tomorrow on Amazon and will be available uh, in, in lots of ways. But do you have a website to track uh, the the book and, and your work, past, present, and future? Uh, uh, my website is uh, Gerald Zimmerman. Dot com. Daniel, why don't you give me yours? It's uh, DanielForrester.com, and my company is Through.com, uh, and the, that's the easiest way to connect in with us because uh, Jerry and I intend to uh, share as many of the interviews that we're doing and stories, and um, you know we're early days in the promotion of the book here, so it'll be interesting to see how, how the marketplace reacts to this. Uh, so far, so good, Tom, when uh, given the level of questions that you've, you've been asking us this last hour. Well, thank you both, and uh, good luck with the book and everything else that you do. Thank you for having thank us. You. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. That was uh, Gerald Zimmerman, Ph.D., globally recognized microeconomist and the author of seven books, um, uh, along with his uh, co-author, Daniel P. Forrester, who is the founder and CEO of Through Inc., an expert consultancy that assists leaders in bridging the gap between corporate culture and corporate strategy. And the book, Relentless, studies the forensics of mobsters' business practices. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The story of Little Blue Riding Hood is true. Only the color has been changed to prevent an investigation. This is the Woods. My name is Wednesday. I work out of homicide. Monday, February the 2nd, 10.22 a.m. Bumped into chicken licking. Told me the sky was falling. I booked her on the 6.14, turned her over to the psychiatrist. Then a call came in at a 5.03. When I was on my way to the 5.03, a 6.18 came in. I added up the 6.14, the 5.03, and the 6.18. Got 1,735. I handed in my paper to the chief. He corrected it. Gave me 100%. Patted me on the head. Told me I was a good cop. <laughs> 11.45 a.m. it happened. 
I saw a little girl in a blue hood carrying a basket. I stopped to question her. Pardon me, ma'am. Could I talk to you for just a minute, ma'am? What about? Nothing much, ma'am. Just want to ask you a few questions, ma'am. What's your name? Little Blue Riding Hood. Where are you going, ma'am? Grandma's house. Yes, ma'am. What do you got in the basket? What are you trying to say? I got something in the basket I shouldn't have? No, ma'am. I didn't say that. Then why are you asking me all these questions for? Just routine, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. May I have a look in that basket, ma'am? Be my guest. Let's see. Sawed-off shotgun. Knife. Bludgeon. Box of dum-dum shells. Nothing suspicious here. All right, ma'am, we may want to talk to you later, so don't leave the woods. She skipped on down the path, but she didn't know I'd seen the concealed compartment in the basket. In it, what I'd suspected all along. Goodies. My job, get to Grandma's before she did. I took a shortcut through the strawberry patch. It was sort of a strawberry shortcut. I walked up to the cottage, rang the bell. Come in, dear. Okay, Grandma, it's a raid. A raid? Why, I'm just a peace-loving old lady. You've got the wrong Grandma. Yes, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. Where'd you get that bump on your head? The sky fell on me this morning. I made a note to book run at 614 and turned her over to the psychiatrist. I tied her up, put her in the closet, then I put on the Grandma suit and got into bed. Come in, ma'am. Hello, Grandma. I got the loot. What are you doing in bed? I'm feeling poorly. But, Grandma, what big ears you have. All the better to get the facts. I just want to get the facts, ma'am. But, Grandma, what a big subpoena you have in your pocket. All the better to serve you with. But, Grandma, what a big 38 police special you have pointed at me. All the better to take you in. You're under arrest. You and your Grandma are operating a goodies ring. A cop. I should have known. Known what, ma'am? You look nothing like my Grandma. You forgot about the mustache. But I don't have a mustache. I know. But Grandma does. Well, I see you broke the goodies ring How'd you get a lead on her, Joe? I just played a hunch, Frank It was just a hunch I played my luck Sometimes a hunch pays off Sometimes it doesn't I was just lucky I just played a hunch, Frank What you're trying to say, Joe Is you just played a hunch A lucky guess Sometimes a hunch pays off Sometimes it doesn't You just played a hunch Is that what you're trying to tell me, Joe? Yeah I just played a hunch was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 